This week on the show, we catapult into 2021 with a special cross-continental episode featuring one of my all-time favorite Sonic creators and songwriters, who was about 3,700 miles away from me when we taped. But thanks to the gifts of modern digital wizardry, it felt like he was right in my living room talking to me in person. His friends know him as the acclaimed Canadian singer and gifted guitarist Afi Gervainen. I call him the Buddha of buttery electric pop and soul and smiling and snarling cut-to-the-bone gospel rock and roll. And despite him dwelling in icy Nova Scotia currently, where I'm told he takes frequent icy dives into the ocean even in winter, you may know him by his tropical gnome de plume. Ladies and gents, I humbly open our fourth season with the one and only Bahamas. Laugh about the shape I'm in Laugh about the shape I'm in Don't do me no good It don't do me no good It done did me no good But first, a very special message from a very special sponsor. I'm happy to say that this episode is sponsored by Podcorn. No, it is not an artisanally sourced popcorn company. Podcorn is an amazing marketplace for podcast creatives like me to finally connect with the sponsorship opportunities they've been searching for. Podcorn lets you focus on your craft by cutting the hustle and connecting you directly to companies and organizations that fit your audience, kind of like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's voices fit together around one mic on a Laurel Canyon sunny day. Indeed, with Podcorn, you cut out the middleman completely. Podcasters of all sizes and in all genres can browse and choose opportunities right on their platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. So I'm still pretty new to this, but what I'm doing right now, they call in the radio biz a host red ad. And it really makes a commercial seem more personal and less Sunday, 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 desperate and sad. Companies love this. And if you're thinking of starting a podcast about dolphin dancing or tragic Chicago White Sox history, Podcorn has a user-friendly site, which I actually love using, and it helps me find new sponsorship opportunities to grow my audience. I know everyone hates the commercial part of podcasts, but I'm not going to lie, I kind of like reading these things. It takes me back to when I would skip school as a kid in Chicago and do voiceover commercials for Happy Meals and car insurance and macaroni and cheese with my dad, who's way better at this than me. He's a professional announcer. Look, if my dreams come true, this show will go from thousands of listens a month to millions, and I'll get to be sponsored by all my favorite brands like LaCroix, Amnesty International, whoever makes Sriracha, Fender Guitars. But until then, Podcorn is my go-to choice. It's super easy to use, and they are friendly to up-and-coming radio makers like me who don't know what a segment producer is, and they do everything themselves coolest thing of all, and then I'll shut up, I promise. You never give up any rights to your podcast using Podcorn. They're here to support you at every step and ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for the brands that you support. Be totally fearless and click the link in my show notes now to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities for your little weird show. Dolphin dancing is going to take off, just saying. So I guess until Dr. Fauci says it's safe to go back on tour, I'll be making these show-on-the-road podcasts from my back-den closet. I hope you still enjoy. Here it is now, season four. to you right now, I think I'm already breaking one of my New Year's resolutions, which is to get to the point and say things more clearly and directly. But I think I have my mother's tendency to make everything a little more poetic and weird. And if I learn one thing after talking to Afi, it's that you should just be yourself. Try that this year. I just can't say things directly, okay? So instead of saying Happy New Year, I've been saying Happy Coup Year. Uh, and if everything goes to plan, we should be getting a new president today in the United States. And while many of us are finally feeling a little relief, we also know that we were minutes away from seeing our elected officials confronted and possibly captured by an armed right-wing mob on the floor of our nation's capital. 
I'm sure I'm not qualified to say this, but I can't help thinking that it's awfully hard to notice how important and monumental a moment in history is while you are living it, while you are witnessing it unfold in real time on TV, on your phone, on the radio as you pick up your dry cleaning, on your laptop as you're sipping Thai iced tea and playing Scrabble. Indeed, history is relentlessly unfolding as my wife had six more Zoom meetings in the other room and I quaintly edited these music discovery episodes for you in my bathrobe, icing my ankle which had stopped working a week before. Indeed, it was hard for me to write my own music about love affairs bears were having during hibernation as a noose was being erected on the Capitol steps to lynch the vice president and the speaker of the house and a confederate flag was waving in the hallowed hallways where our fractious union actually came together to create the laws that ruled our land. How are we as songwriters and as citizens supposed to sit back and say nothing? We may never know what would have happened if they made it into the chamber that day with their guns drawn and the Capitol Police nowhere to be found. But I'm thankful that order was restored and democracy was done that day. And the right man and the first black and Indian American woman were elected to lead a new day in America. Sure, this is a music podcast. Why am I going on about this? Because I think in 2021, we need to pay attention more. We need to listen deeper and make sure we know what we're reading. For the last decade, I have been blissfully listening to the records made by the artist known as Bahamas. And by blissfully, I mean listening only on a surface level, enjoying the rhythms and the humor in his lyrics and the daring darting stabs of his guitar, but not really listening any deeper than that. But if you listen with new ears, you can hear the loneliness lurking behind the smile, the pain and poverty and otherness behind the easy-going grooves. Songs like Lost in the Light, which has been streamed over a hundred million times, can just be remembered as a easy listening track from 10 years ago that has really cool vocals and is probably on a playlist that you love. And his new stuff? Well, it's probably just dad rock for the distracted millennial mind like me. But finally getting to talk to one of your favorite artists? Well, it changed everything for me. Me and Afy discussed his playful and powerful new record, Sad Hunk, how he's transitioned from brooding, globe-trotting guitar whiz to more of a homebody family man covering subjects like pregnancy, drug abuse, and the future his mixed-race kids will face. Again, until I sat down to re-listen to the record after we talked about his tough childhood, I only heard the cheerful grooves and the lush harmonies lulling me to sleep. When I first fell in love with his music in college, Bahamas was just breaking out as a solo act, making squirmy, vocal-rich records like Barcodes, which made him a headliner across Canada. I even got to see him play at the Winnipeg Folk Festival when my band Dust Bowl Revival was there, and it was a thrill. But it's his newest work that sets him on the course for something bigger. He can be a truth serum artist for our times. Anyway, what is it that I'm trying to really say? This year, let's try listening to our favorite artists a bit deeper. Find out where they came from, and if you can, support them during this continued downtime to see where they can go next. As always, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you can hear the sirens going by my little recording booth. Sorry about that. But uh, if you can leave us a friendly review and rating on iTunes, other folks might be able to find us. I want people to hear this music. Every Wednesday, we will have brand new episodes coming your way, and there's some really exciting stuff in the editing bay right now, including episodes with the Secret Sisters, Langhorn Slim, Low Cut Connie, the Almond Betts Band, Lara Lynn, and many more. And you know what the weird thing is? I've always been one of those people that kind of hates long poetic intros and podcasts. So enough of all this. Here he is now, the Canadian wonder, Bahamas. Hey there, my name is Afi, also known as Bahamas. I sometimes tour around uh, by myself or sometimes with a band, but uh, I make albums. And I live in Nova Scotia in Canada. It's the most beautiful place in the world. I like to wake up in the morning and uh, be on the ocean. And, um, and I feel very lucky to be here. Thank you again for doing this. Uh, you know, I'm a massive, massive fan and I really appreciate uh, the new record, especially now. I think it was able to say some things that I think a lot of people <laughs> kind of want to say, but wow. maybe don't have the courage to. Well, I'll take that uh, compliment. Thank you very much. And I would encourage you and whoever else 
feels like they can't say what they want to say, <laughs> brother, that's what you got to do. That's what we all have to do. You know what I mean? Like you can't uh, hold back for fear of hurting someone's feelings. If it's the truth and it's it, the truth sort of, uh, works in, in every scenario. It was interesting scenario, I think, this morning re-listening to some of the songs, uh, as I was making breakfast and looking over at my wife as she kind of started, uh, you know, hearing the lyrics to Less Than Love. Oh, yeah. And what she think about, of you know, the sort of fractious maneuvering of making a family and the decisions that have to be made between husband and wife about what your future is going to be and who's going to get the attention who and who's going to be um, loved most, you know, and you have this mm-hmm. line that I cut myself up into thirds, right? And you have two mm-hmm. kids. So it's it's about finding who you are within that uh, slicing of your new life. Do you feel like you often are cut into th- three parts or four parts <laughs> when you're a little family unit? Um, well, I'm not sure if I was referencing my kids necessarily with that line, although it does apply and, and you know, has a sort of poetic part to it, I guess. But uh, I think for me, it's more just like my my domestic life, my family life in general, and then my work, and then me, those, those, to me, I guess those are the three parts, you know? Um, And of course, I, you know, I am reflected in all of those things. But I I think beyond that, I'm, I'm also just a that's not Bahamas. I'm also a that's not a husband, a that's not a father. And who is that person, you know, and uh, often that, that portion of my life sort of um, goes un- unexamined and, uh, I just take it for granted. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, I'm just, well, I'm working or I'm, I'm a dad or I'm these, you know, these other things. And those are all, those are all true. But at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm me, I'm this individual person and uh, as are you. And, and, uh, the struggle is always just figuring out how to put yourself up there, out there into the world in some way that feels fair and feels honest and feels, you know, um, yeah, that, that you're okay with. I only want to look at you. Don't make your beauty pay-per-view. Cause daddy wouldn't know what to do. And he'd just do nothing. So much of life is reflecting back at us all the time, even if you're not a big-time celebrity like I am. That's sarcasm for those uh, people that are listening that don't that, that aren't that's not translating to. But anyway, um, I mean, I mean, in Canada, in Canada, I would say that you're you're a pretty big deal. I mean, I think that's why I wanted to bring you to folks down here who obviously you know are listening to you, sure. but I never fully understand why. Canadian artists seem to be sequestered in a way that somehow doesn't translate or doesn't get heard right away in the States. I mean, it's, it's right there. You know, I think Canada has for, for so long, for decades, uh, punched way above its weight in terms of the quality of the music, uh, and art in general that we export to the world, you know, whether it's, whether it's music or whether it's, uh, Mike Myers and Jim Carrey and, and, uh, you know, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and, and just Drake and The Weeknd. And, and, you know, I think to my mind, it, it's, it's so, the fact that I'm Canadian is almost, I just don't think about it. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. In fact, I'm quite proud to be Canadian. But I don't, I never think of my music as Canadian. I don't think the Arcade Fire thinks of their music as Canadian or, or Feist thinks of, of her music as Canadian or anything like that. So, But you've made a decision you've made a decision to not come to LA or New York, you know, in fact, you've moved out of the cultural center of Toronto and now you're in Nova Scotia. So you're even more sort of Canadian (laughs) than ever. Not saying that's a bad thing. I think that's, it makes you, uh, I think more exotic to us in some stupid way, you know? Sure. And, and, you know, it's, um, I think for me moving out of the big city, um, moving out of Toronto, you know, that, that had to do more with my personal life, um, more with my family life than it does my professional life. I think there was a part of, of, uh, me that definitely thought about moving somewhere like Los Angeles. I have a lot of friends there. Obviously there's just so many talented writers and producers and right. artists. I mean, the entire music business is there now. So 
on a professional level, I am pretty drawn to a place like LA. Um, but yeah, in, in, in many ways, I just realized over time that for me, the, the sort of opposite move makes more sense. You know, um, my career is kind of at a point where I do have a certain amount of autonomy and control over what I'm doing and where I'm doing it. And, um, the, the fact is that I do tour a lot in the States, a lot more than I tour in Canada. I, I, I don't want to say I take Canada for granted. I'm, I'm so thankful for the audience that I have here, but it's a pretty small country by comparison. So when it, you know, the way that that works out on paper is that I maybe play 10 or 12 shows in Canada a year on a, on a normal year and, you know, spend weeks and weeks and weeks touring in, in America, you know? So, um, to me, I, I, I'm sure there's, there's, you know, my manager and accountants and everybody could get into the actual measure of success and say, yes, well, these are your biggest markets and all that. But in my mind, I think like in the last 10 years, definitely America is the place where I've spent the most amount of time. And I've just met so many wonderful musicians there and, and, um, obviously lots of just music fans, you know, but I mean, for me, it's, it's, um, there never really was like an expectation or goal of overnight success. In fact, I told my manager when we started working together before he was even my manager, he was just my buddy. And, you know, I said, I want to get rich slow. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, now it sounds like some sort of wisdom from some guru that you would hear Tony Robbins say or something like that. But but at the time, I kind of recognized that, yeah, I felt confident in the music that I was making and I felt confident in my skills and my abilities and what I had to offer. And at the same time, I felt realistic to know that I wasn't going to produce a big pop song. I was going to just make the music I'm making and it would find its audience on its own terms. And and in some ways, um, that's sort of been the most satisfying thing now that I'm you know a decade plus into making my own albums is just that people are still discovering my first album or, you know, still discovering bar chords or lost in the light has sort of had this life of its own that it's been part of people's weddings and funerals. And it's it's sort of worked its way into people's life. And that song for me is, you know, it's a 10 year old song. So that the fact that I can still play that song and, and connect to it and have audiences that connect to it. I mean, it's so um, gratifying and sort of rewarding to me, you know, beyond, beyond any sort of measure of success that's uh financial or instagram followers or anything like that well i think that's what's interesting is like you mentioned bar chords the record from 2012 which had a big impact on me as a songwriter and a a creator of just how you can have folk music and rock and roll and soul i kind of i think like fused together in a way uh with how you use harmony and background vocals almost like Aretha Franklin's backing band where you have this mm. Greek chorus in a way leading you forward through the narratives and I love that because I think it takes the ego out of a lot of the songs you're basically mm. having the catchiest parts often be sung by other people by the people around yes. you and and they yes have this double uh, there's this double song thing where you, we're listening to you and your lyrics but really we're going uh, uh, you know yes sure sure it's the same thing when you, know, yeah, you listen to well, a, a Aretha Franklin song you're singing the background vocals you know because yes, it's almost like yeah. more accessible it's, it like lets yes. us be part of the song like we're in the Greek chorus too because this life is long so you wouldn't be wrong Being free Yeah, well, that, I mean, that, uh, you know, Lost in Light, or even so many of my other songs, I don't want to say I have a formula, but I do I do like having those types of vocal parts that are just woven into the to the rhythm, to the fabric of the track. That, that I think what you're, what you're saying, um, and the, that what people are responding to is just, you don't even know why, you're just sort of, it's like the drums, if, if, if you're moving your head, that's a good sign. That's what I want people to do when the right when the song starts. 
And if the vocals can be part of that, then it just sort of adds this other elemental layer to it. The same way, um, you know, drumming and just, you know, you, I think we can assume that like drums is the most primitive instrument. You know, it's, it's before we had guitars, before we had anything, guys were banging on the walls of caves and bu building out rhythms. And then on top of that, you have the voice and, and, uh, so yeah, I can't say I again. I don't. I don't think about it too too much. But in the, in the, in an effort to try and explain it on your podcast, I I do think it's something about that appeals to me a lot. It's just these elemental things that the rhythm and the voice, um, to me, are the most interesting things. And and in fact, in the history of me having a touring band, originally I just toured with a drummer. That's all I could afford to do at the time. And I, I had a drummer and me in a Subaru Forester. And we toured all around the U.S. and we toured all over the place and had a wonderful time. And then as my you know, thing grew a little bit and I could afford to hire someone, I didn't immediately hire a bass player. In fact, I hired two singers. Mm. So then we toured as a drums, guitar, and three-part three harmony. Um, or I could use the, their voices as another instrument. They could actually sing some of the lines that I was playing on guitar as a call and response. Or they could sort of help to strengthen a riff or something that I was playing. I never really thought about it as just like a, as a, I guess you could say like a typical background singer. I just think that the voice is just another instrument and you can choose to use it however you want. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's always been a, you know, a big thing for me. I, I like, I like having music that I can play it solo. I can play it with an orchestra. I can play it with a, with a rock band. I can play it with just me and two singers. I've gotten the chance to do all that kind of stuff in, in, in touring over the last um, while. And, um, I think for me, the diversity is kind of what makes it interesting. Uh, I, I just, if I had to just do one thing every day, as much as I love ACDC, if I had to play an ACDC, I think I would get bored. I hate to say that. And I love ACDC. <laughs> and they were such a seminal band for me when I was a teenager. But um, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm much more as a writer, I sort of, you know, I like those guys like Neil Young, as you were saying earlier, you know, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, they seem to be able to do folk, rock, R&B, and bring in elements of vocal groups or gospel groups right. or folk music. And, and why, why limit yourself? You know, it's not that I'm going to go make a Zydeco record tomorrow, but if I wanted to use an accordion or something, I, I'd love to just be able to do that without someone telling me, no, you can't do that. That doesn't belong on a Bahamas record. So, well, you have some remarkable consistency through your records, which, you know, again, as artists, I think a lot of times we, expect that we should almost like reinvent ourselves every few records. Whereas <laughs> I feel like I respect someone more like you who actually has a thing that they can do that like is mm -hmm. so comforting, you know, like I see the through line between lost in the light and, uh, you know, some of the songs off sad hunk, the new record, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, can't complain where you feel like, oh yeah, that's my guy. You know, like that's the yeah. sound. And it's the interplay between guitar as character, where like you lead with the guitar right off the bat of on the first song. You could say like, this guy yeah. is about creating a sonic journey with the guitar. And then mm -hmm. I'm gonna maybe explore through my voice. And then I'm going to bring in the Greek chorus of uh, vocal harmonies and it yeah. you're stacking the sort of building in front of us. And that is something that is beautiful and you do it so well where it's like, why should you have to reinvent yourself? Like, that's what I love about your music, you know? Yeah. Doing well? Should I feel bad because I can't tell? Well... Well, up, up, I think up until a couple of years ago, I would have agreed with you that, um, uh, and I, I learned something really valuable on this last record. I didn't play much guitar on this new album, and I just assembled the, the the band that I wanted, and I assembled you know the guitar players that I wanted to play with, and without even discussing it, they sort of just instinctively knew me, like my songs, and my voice, and my personality, and I don't say this to be arrogant or cocky. I just mean, you know, it felt good to feel 
confident that what I was bringing to the table, just in terms of being a songwriter and a singer, that was that was the material was very strong. And so when I showed the band the songs, I'd literally just put the guitar down and I would go upstairs in the control room and I had a little, you know, mic there that I could communicate with them. But I just let them figure the song out. And their instincts sort of led them to all the right places. And, and um, you know, and I would just sing along and just thought, man, this is incredible. You know, this is incredible that the songs are as cliche as it sounds. Uh, the songs are kind of leading the way. And when you have when you work with really high caliber musicians, they all they're they're just great listeners. I mean, that's that's in my experience, that's what they all have in common. And they can sort of cue in on on those those things that are the real elemental ingredients in the song whether it's a lyric thing or a melodic thing often both but sam weber the guy you brought in guitar yeah sam weber yeah sam weber played a lot of guitar and christine bougie who's played a guitar on a number of my records now and has toured with me for for a number of years but um but yeah i mean i i feel like i threw acdc under the bus a little <laughs> earlier but they're actually a great example of that you know as our credence clearwater revival or or um you know, there's there's lots of other artists that sort of maybe fall into that. But even Neil Young, I feel like he has so much diversity in his records. But the through line is just him, his personality, his voice. Yeah, it's always Neil. Him as a writer. You know, it doesn't matter if he's, you know, if he's wearing a different outfit or if he's playing with Booker T and the MGs or Crazy Horse or, or a Nashville session band or whatever. It's just always Neil Young, you know, and, and, and I wouldn't dare put myself in, in uh, that rarefied air. But um I hope that over over the course of time that my records kind of do have that quality where you can put them on and know right away that it's a Bahamas record. Um, You're having these very personal, intimate <clears throat> songs that you create where there's not a whole lot of embellishment on your vocals. You're not reverb heavy. <laughs> You're not uh, usually no out. reverb. Yeah, but right. Yes. It's it's almost like you basically are recording a voice memo of sort of this intimate secret that you're like, okay, so, uh, um, I was in debt and, um, I'm, I'm going to cut up my credit cards and I'm feeling much better about myself. Mm -hmm. And there's like no adornment to that, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in, uh, the song where you're trying to keep up with the Jones. There's a couple things there that I would respond to. And, and one of them would be to just definitely in the lyrics, I always try and I, I just, try and be plain spoken. Uh, I try and be plain spoken just in, in my communications with my wife, with my kids. I, I don't, I never baby talked with my kids. You know, I always just said, are you hungry? I'll go get food. You know, <laughs> this is a sweet potato. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not, I just think that's what works for me. And, and, uh, that's what, you know, it works best for me. And, and why wouldn't it work in music? Uh, don't use any flowery adjectives that you don't need. Just get to the point. Just say what you're going to say. And when you're done, stop saying it. <laughs> um, and then beyond that, I think just for my, the things that I write about, I, I have kind of discovered that ironically, the more personal I can be, the more intimate I can share, uh, about my own life and my own thoughts I, you know, there's a sort of strange irony there because it does sort of let other people in. Um, you'd think that it would actually be the opposite, but it, it, in my experience, it's, it's, the, it's, it's just, it works almost every time. If you can tap into something that you're really, really going through and speak to it, honestly, what you're doing is just opening the door wide open for people to say, oh my God, that's exactly how I feel. Oh my God, I know exactly what he's saying. Or, you know what I mean? It's, it's, and we've all have, we all have songs, you know, I have that experience with Willie Nelson or, or, you know, other artists that I love. It just feels like they're singing to me. And, you know, and of course, how could they be? They don't, they don't even know I exist. <laughs> so it's universal, you know, it it's just universal. It's exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, I have sort of realized that, uh, for me, that's, that's, um, uh, you know, a writing method that sort of proves successful, as a writer and I think as a listener and, and actually to be specific on that song up with the Jones, I, I wrote that it, it's sort of about someone else. And I was singing about, you know, you started out, you had no plan. You took a job and soon we're working for the man. And then I, at some point I realized, you know, this is more interesting if I sing it from the first person, if I sing it about me, it's sort of, it's less judgmental. It's less, it's less, um, 
you know, it's less me telling someone else how they should live their life. And it's more just um, as a tool for getting the song across. It's, it's, it's more, it, the message is clearer if I sing it from the first person. I started out, I had no plan. I took a job and soon was working for the man. And now it seems through modern dreams. And all I've done is learn to live beyond my means. Yes, we had the house and we had the car and paid for it all. On some credit card, now that ain't right. No, no. But it's almost like how Shakespeare used the court jester to sort of get people into a sort of happy mood, and then the and then he actually is the only one who can speak truth to power. That he can actually tell the king right. that you're insane yes. and that you need to change your ways. Yeah. And you know, well, that's what I you, mean. You, I think you I lead hope. with this, yeah. this funky kind of rhythm, but really you're going like, you know, I never realized that I was living a lie. Yeah. And that I made money king and yeah. uh, that I was, you know, in debt and I had to break free of this system right, right. that was dragging me and my family down. That's some pretty heavy shit, but you're smiling, listening to it, which is kind of yes. like, the way we can actually hear it instead of being like, stop preaching at me, man. Well, exactly. And that's just, you know, it's the, those old, those old sort of adages, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. All that kind of stuff is, is, uh, it does, you know, those things are true. And your wife, uh, sort of coined this phrase, sad hunk that you put on the record. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's more just like when I first started out, I, I, you know, I do these photo shoots for magazines or papers or something. And, um, I always thought of myself as kind of an open person. Uh, I always try and crack jokes. I'm always trying to like, you know, just lighten the room a little bit. And then I feel like the, in the early days when the, the music business didn't really know what I was doing, they didn't know what category I, they, to slot me in. I think they'd already kind of decided that I was a, a mysterious, brooding, uh, bearded character that was recording my albums, Bonnie Ivor style, up in a cabin somewhere. Um, and so the photographs kind of reflected that. You know, I would pose for these photographs and, they, and, and I'd be smiling and looking right into the lens and then the ones that they always seem to choose were these ones where I'm looking off into the distance yeah. and it's all half lit and, and shadow and stuff like that. And it looked, you know, very artful and, and, um, it just, it just felt strange. So anyway, yeah, one of them, I, I was, you know, they sent it over and I was looking at it and my wife walked by and she said, Ooh, sad hunk. And, uh, just sort of teasing me, you know, making fun of me. And, uh, so we laughed about it then we still laugh about it. It kind of became a little thing. My friends kind of picked it up and, and, um, you know, it seemed to kind of happen time and time again on, on different album cycles. Um, and so for the album cover for this one, I just said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just fully finally get the picture that I want, which was basically a, uh, almost like a department store photo shoot. You know, I, I told right. my art director, Heather, that I work with for, I said, you know, I just want the album cover to be like, I signed a giant record deal in 1992. And, uh, so, you know, I didn't, there was no stylist. There was, I just wore my own clothes. And uh, we'd set up for the picture and, and I looked right into the lens and big smile and we took a few pictures and that was it, you know, and, and I'm so happy that we did that. But it's also nice to have a photo like that because it sort of softens the blow. Of even the word hunk for some reason, I don't know if it's 2020 or whatever, but even the word hunk seems to be right on the line for some people in terms of, you know, um, sex symbol, maybe. Yeah, I, exactly. Like it, it's like, there, rather than just like go for the humorous side of it, there's there. I think there are some people who would be want to just go, oh my god, you know, just dismiss it. Or the, how arrogant that guy's calling himself a hunk. I'm sure you've never really compared yourself to Dolly Parton, but uh, <laughs> watching. I just watched a documentary. Yeah, on we her just watched it last night, um, and her persona that she created where she leads with this buxom, dumb blonde image, but really she's this brilliant businesswoman and songwriter and impresario. It's like she's basically like charming people 
to death, so they can't ever mm-hmm. really uh, hate her for any reason. Right, right. And they love her so much I mean, that I, they'll listen <laughs> to like these songs that she's writing in the '60s about abortion and about you know yeah. domestic violence. And you're smiling as you're watching her, and then you're actually able to listen to this very heavy stuff. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not saying that mm-hmm. you're trying to do the same thing but again i feel like you're putting some heavy stuff in there which is awesome without without even knowing it i mean i I, again i i would be a flatter to be in dolly parton's company in any regard but uh of course of course i think that way i think that's what's required you know i think you you um i i sing about mental health i sing about drug addiction i sing about uh, you know, pregnancies that don't come to term. I, th- I sing about the struggles of being married. I sing, a, sing about stuff that, you know, it's heavy for, for lack of a better term. It's just sort of, I try and sing about the heavier parts of life. Um, selfishly, because I'm trying to figure them out, because I'm struggling with them, because they're a part of my life. And then they just become, you know, they become part of my songs and it becomes part of my career. It becomes my profession. It becomes, it becomes sort of woven into the fabric of my life. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope I, I like to think I'm charming in some regard, although I can't say I get many opportunities to exercise my charm anymore. There was, there was this one paper. It was like some sort of random California times thing. I, I've never heard of this publication, but they did a very in-depth analysis of your new record of which they of my record yeah of which they decided <laughs> that you are fully embracing your middle age and transitioning into full dad rock right i think that's pretty accurate right and it's almost like if that's what dad rock is maybe that's something to be embraced I mean, I think uh, perhaps it's just good timing. It seemed like dad shoes and dad jeans and sort of dads in general seem to be going through a bit of a renaissance. You know, it's uh, for a while there, I think maybe dads were taken for granted. And, uh, you know, if, if, if people are coming back around to realizing how important they are, then I think that's a good thing. My dad left before I was born. Uh, I didn't know him at all growing up. I mean, he died. I, I never knew him at all. But but, um, you know, certainly I've gone through a, a process of, of reckoning with that and, and then becoming a father myself. You know, you sort of realize, well, now I have a chance to, to do it the way I would have wanted, wanted. You know, I can be the dad that I wanted to be kind of thing. That sounds so cheesy to say that. But, but um, if I'm shining a positive light on being a father and being a musical father, then, then I'll, I, I'll happily take that compliment. So you grew up in uh, in Barrie, Ontario. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, I sort of had this uh, strange childhood that was half in Barrie, Ontario, which was sort of like um, uh, a small town. When I grew up there, it was a small town. It was pretty charming. You know, it had a downtown with arcades and bookstores and record stores and pizza parlors and stuff. And, and then in the summer times, I would go to Finland. My mother's from Finland. She has 12 brothers and sisters, Ooh. and she's the only one that left. So, um, in the summer times on the last day of school, you know, I would pack up my bag and the next day she would drive me to the airport. And at that time it was pretty standard. Kids flew around by themselves. So, um, I, I just loved it. I, I, I got a sort of early taste for that travel. I would fly over to Finland. One of my relatives would meet me over there and I would spend the whole summer fishing and hunting, riding my bike and, and um, just bouncing around at different, uh, hanging out with my cousins and my aunts and uncles, and and uh, I just loved it. And that, and I then I realized later as I got older that it was really just I was the benefactor of my mom's sort of economic situation because she, I have a I have a sister and brother who are six years younger than I am, and um, so basically it was the cheapest way to find childcare because she could buy me this plane ticket and then I would literally live for free and eat for free and spend the whole summer over there. And it was just one less kid for her to have to deal with for, for without childcare for two months. Um, and then of course, when I got old enough to watch my brother and sister, then I didn't go to Finland so much, you know, 
so uh, those early years, those they're really formative years for me. I really just um, I look back on them as much as I we grew up lean in so many other ways, and there's other struggles that we might have had. Um, for me, I felt like I had such a good childhood in that regard. You know, I had so much freedom, and um, I really feel like that sort of is part of who I am. It's part of how I developed. It's part of how I grew grew up, and and um, and it's part of how I look at the world, you know, and, and um, a lot of it's just because that's literally all my mom could do for me at the time. You know, she just didn't didn't have the means to do anything else. And what an incredible thing that she was able to do at all. You know, I, I um, I'm so grateful for it. So, yeah, I I, um, I don't know that I would do that with my kids, but I just I just have such fond memories of the way that I grew up, you know. What is your name from? Is it a family name passed down? My name is no. You know, I, I my mom tried to explain it once. I'm not sure she made any sense at all. I feel like she said she saw a movie once with a character named Afy, and she liked the sound of that. Um, good enough. And that was good enough. You know, it's not a Finnish name. I mean, my last name is obviously, but um, but uh, yeah, it's not. Um, she said I was going to be Afy or Zev. Those were the two names that she had picked out. And she decided to go with Afy, so here I am. You know, I begged her to be Kevin when I was like 13, 14. I used to get picked on so horribly. Uh, you know, back when bullying was acceptable back then, I used to get picked on pretty good. But, but um, I just begged my mom to be Kevin. And she said, when I turn 16, if I still feel that way, we would go and do the papers, and I could be Kevin. But by the time I was 16, I was, I had found music actually, and developed a lot of confidence just from learning the guitar and performing and and. And by that time, I was fine with being Afy and uh, didn't think so much about being Kevin anymore. I have this note about uh, a song of yours I love, uh, Everything to Everyone, off the Earth Tones record, that it feels yeah. like it could be a PSA for children's mental health. Like, <laughs> like you're sort of coaching a younger version of yourself that, you know, you can just, like, be you and you don't have to try to fix everything and try to be everything yes. to everyone all the time. And it has this kind of almost childlike toy percussion intro, you know, where it seems like yes. almost like little yes. kids are banging on stuff. And then it comes into this very funky, uh, piano and guitar, uh, riff that it's almost like chopped up, you know, like you're, you're cutting it off. Yeah. Like yeah. You're not fully realized yet. Like you're almost like, learning the guitar and the piano as the song is evolving, you know? Yeah. And you have that line, you know, left alone. I just hurt myself. Like you need these people around you to help shape you. Um, tell me a little bit about yeah. that song if you could. Okay. Well, I have to squint back into my memory a little bit. I haven't thought about it or obviously played it in a long, long time, but, um, I mean, the chorus, I think is self-explanatory is sort of much to what we were speaking about earlier. I just try and I can't be everything to everyone. And, um, you know, I'm not sure it requires any explanation beyond that, but, but I think we all do try that. I definitely try and do that to, uh, the people in my life always trying, Oh, you need help. Oh, maybe I can help you with your problem, you know? And, and even though that's, you know, the motivation is, is positive. It's not always realistic. And, um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think I just sort of went through some period where I struggled with, with uh, finding who I am, how I want to put myself into the world. Uh, I see photos of myself when I was younger and just like my hair's all flopped in front of my face and I'm, I, my clothes are all um, like I was trying on literally different outfits to try and figure out who I was, you know. And then at some point when you develop that inner confidence, then you can... Like right now I'm wearing tights and uh, <laughs> and a big sweatshirt. And when you develop that inner confidence, then it doesn't matter what you are because much like Neil Young, you're Neil Young in every situation. It doesn't matter what band you're playing with or, or what era you're in. You're just always going to be that. And, and um, so that there's, there's a certain level of empowerment that comes with uh, when you kind of realize that you got there, you know? Left alone, I just hurt myself. Take a bottle down from the shelf And raise a toast to my own health Not you 
Was it really only me? Cause it takes two to disagree. So let's stick close and we'll both be free. That's true. When did music start coming into your life? Yeah, probably 12, 11 or 12, when I sort of started to actually try and apply myself to sort of learning these things. I had a little, I had rigged up a little fake drum kit in the basement and, and just sort of called myself the drummer, mostly because I didn't have a guitar. My friends had guitars and I would be like, just beat around on pots and pans and whatever other things were laying around just because uh, I want to jam with them and just be around them and stuff, you know? But um my mother got me a guitar at a yard sale. Like it had a hole in the back. She like sanded this little veneer down and glued it on and everything. And, and uh, I was so thrilled. I, I That was my only guitar for years. It's a nylon string guitar. Mm. and um, Just like Dolly Parton. Yeah, Willie Nelson. It's totally, I mean, it's funny. It's ironic. You know, at the time I would have loved to have an electric guitar, but I was playing like Nirvana songs and trying to play all these like, you know, grungy type tunes on this nylon string guitar so i was pretty thrilled when they put out that acoustic uh mtv special you know because it's that made sense to me on the guitar i was playing but yeah i don't know the the someone asked me about this a while ago and i was trying to remember some of the early songs i wrote even before i knew how to play chords i, I wrote this tune called jolly green giant about this kid that died of cancer in my class hmm. when i was really young and the 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 melody wasn't very sophisticated or or you know i don't remember the lyrics being like you know overly sophisticated but i just remember them being to the point and honest you know i wasn't they like they're probably too earnest to to really like uh actually be a song worth listening to but in some ways i feel like i still write that way i still try Mm. you know my vocabulary is bigger and my access to uh sort of music is greater, but I feel like I probably still try and write the same way I did back then on that first song, which is just sing about what you're singing about, get to the point, you know, don't, don't dance around too much. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I wish I had a recording of that actually, but anyway, that's how it is. And some, in many ways I'm grateful that I don't, because it also means that there isn't like incriminating evidence of how shitty I was on YouTube, uh, for all to discover, you know? You had this uh, this line, I think, when you were making the uh, Bahamas is Afi album, that mm-hmm. why can't I make a record that is that sounds like it's produced by '80s Van Morrison and John Williams? Right. You know. Right. Yeah. It's like, what well, if Van Morrison and Jurassic Park were in the same album? Like, well, sweet. I had this. Uh, I had this. Uh, my friend Robbie, who's my manager and my producer, like, you know, he's the one that sort of encouraged me to record my songs before it was Bahamas, before it was anything. Um, and he really facilitated that. And, and anyway, so, you know, he's intimately involved in everything I do and always has been. Um, I remember when we were making the Bar Chords record, there's a song called Montreal and I'm playing nylon string guitar and I did a little guitar solo. Very, like, has a Willie Nelson feel to it anyway and I was so happy with it and I just kept on turning them to turn it up turn the solo up and I'd say turn it up more turn it up more and, <laughs> and eventually he just turned around in his chair and he just said you can't turn the solo up the solo can't be louder than the lead vocal and I said why and he just didn't have an answer <laughs> and I was like well there you go like I'm the one that decides like there's no there's literally no rules we're not there's no attempt at making a pop record here. We're not trying to make anything that is satisfying any sort of like fake, uh, you know, radio demands that we're trying to fit in. We're just trying to make a cool song. And I think it would sound cool if the guitar was ridiculously loud. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, I think I won that argument. I haven't heard that song in a long time. But in any way, it was it was a sort of a, I, I hope, a revealing moment for both of us, you know, because it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, there are no rules. So why not have John Williams and Pharrell Williams and, and uh, you know, Walter Williams on the same track? It, it's like, it's just, um, it, yeah, anything goes is a better approach. You know, it's always better to just try it rather than not try it because you're afraid that, what someone might think or, or, you know, it might not work. Try it. If it doesn't work, everyone will know at the same time. You won't have to, you won't even have to discuss it. It'll just become apparent, right? When I do all I can, honey, please don't give up on your man. I think I think you have a way of uh, distilling songs into sort of one idea, right? Where you're not dwelling too long on it. Some of the songs on the new record are under three minutes long, right? They're almost like sure. these tone poems where you're basically like, you know, uh, like done did me no good. You're like, okay, yeah. I'm like yeah. realizing that doubt and angst and all this sort of personal questioning all the time it's like not worth it you know it's like yes here's my idea two and a half minutes and we're out like we don't need to sort of dwell on it well that's the, that's the other realization as a writer you know just that a song can be whatever i want it to be it doesn't have to be four minutes with a bridge with a solo with this with that more and more i sort of i think that you know the writing and recording thing is is just so it's just so thrilling and so charging you know i think i think most people would agree it's just like that feeling when you're in the studio when you get that track and you know you're you're singing it or you're playing it and at some point whether it's a minute in or 2 minutes in you realize that holy shit i think this might be the take mm. and then you look around and all the other musicians are like thinking the exact same thing and you're trying to put it out of your mind because you don't want to jinx it. You just want to get to the end of the song. It's like, that is the high, that's the drug. And so for me in a way, like just writing songs is just a vehicle to get me in the studio so that I can have the potential to maybe if everything goes perfectly, have that feeling that lasts for five seconds. And I don't know. like, I think, I think, musicians probably I don't know that I can explain it any better but I do think musicians probably know what I'm talking about and and it's um it's just it's 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 everything it's the whole reason why I write songs in a lot of ways is to just to get into the studio and get that opportunity to go there well it feels like a a gambling addiction at times where it feels like yeah. we want to create these things that maybe will be done right and maybe we'll move someone or maybe no one will care and it can be heartbreaking yeah. at times where the song that you think is really going to move people and maybe change your life change your career mm -hmm. is met with total indifference and then some other song yeah. comes along and then that is the one and it's not up yeah. to you at a certain point it's up yeah. to the listener yeah i've certainly had that experience and even further to that i've 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 recorded songs of my own where I thought it was going to be this big transcendental moment or some big song. And then I had to really be honest and listen back and say, you know what? This isn't the version. This isn't the one. Uh, there's a song on this record called Wisdom of the World, the last song. I recorded it for the last record mm. with Pino Palladino and James Gadsden. Like, it should have been amazing, you know? And I, and I don't, you know, take take nothing away from the musicians and everyone else that was involved. 
But I had to, at some point, I just had to be honest and say, you know what, this is not the version. This isn't it. And I put it away. And it's painful. It's weird in a way because it's, it's like a, it is a failure, you know? I think if there's one thing that has changed or maybe has um, evolved through your music, it's that a song like Wisdom of the World is now able to exist where I don't feel like in Pink Strat or Bar Chords or uh, Earth Tones, that song would have a place, whereas this mm-hmm. sort of um, clear-eyed view of a very dark and dangerous world um, mm-hmm. is something that we need right now, especially. And you leave us at the end of the record with this. You know, you're talking about mm-hmm. people, you know, dying of fentanyl overdoses and and that your mm-hmm. your daughter uh is viewed by the world as mixed race but she doesn't even know that mm-hmm. yet you know and that's a mm-hmm. like there's these powerful mm-hmm. forces um that especially in in the states are uh coming to the fore right now you know there's a massive mm-hmm. opioid epidemic there's a massive mm-hmm. discussion about race and how um the power structures of our history have been um, ensconced for too long. And, um, you know, that song is sort of this call to action, but you're not, like, telling people to do anything. You're saying, like, this Mm -hmm. is what's happening all around us, uh, and that is sort of what our world is, And and we have to accept that. Like, we have to, like, own it in some way, you know? And it's just knowing it is better than pretending that it's not there. I think um, the only call to action in that song is is about forgiveness. The very last line of the song is, I think the whole thing's about forgiveness. And in some ways, it, it totally dismisses all the lines that came before it. Once you realize that it's about forgiveness... And you realize that through true forgiveness, you actually get all the power back mm. because it's it's completely it's so exhausting hanging on to a grudge. It's exhausting being angry at someone. It's exhausting hating. It's exhausting. All those things are draining. They're not empowering. Tell our president that. The, the, well, I mean, you know, with all respect, it's the, it's it's not just the president. You know, I think I think we could, we all could stand to do that on all sides. We we need to. We need to realize the power of forgiveness, the true power, because it, it, it actually fills you with energy. So when you really forgive someone, you get all that back and, and you suddenly are able to move forward in your life and accomplish all the things that you want to, you know, and I've certainly learned that time and time again with my, you know, my father and my brother, who's a drug addict and, and, you know, this is, it, it can be motivated uh, just by being, just by being selfish, just wanting to, you want to forgive someone for, just for yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? Not, not like, not even for them, not even what it means to them. They're on their own journey, you know? Right. You're there on their own path. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think uh, I sort of spoke to that on my last record. I definitely speak to that on this record. Um, you know, bad boys need love too, I think is a, is a speaks to that. I think it's just, there's something in there that I'm, I'm exploring definitely in my day to day life. I'm exploring it in my music and I'm realizing more and more that if we focused a little bit more on that, I think all of us would find that the next step is easier to take and, and putting one foot in front of the other gets a little bit easier as soon as you stop carrying water for other people, stop assuming that, uh, that you need to take responsibility for them. Take responsibility for yourself and, and, uh, and move forward with your life. I guess the whole thing's about forgiveness I guess the whole thing's about forgiveness Guess the whole thing's about forgiveness I guess the whole thing's about forgiveness That sounds 
is so cheesy and preachy and what am I even talking about? I'm not even talking about music anymore. But <laughs> no, it's important, man. But, I think uh, uh, yeah, I think we have to um, have music speak for um, things that can't be spoken in our personal life. Sure, you know. Sure, um, sure. All right, last question. I'm going to ask you. Um, yes, is can you remember the pinnacle moment where you felt like you had reached? some sort of rock and roll heaven on earth situation. And on the other side of it, what is the worst show that you can remember? <laughs> Give me your best show and your worst show scenario. Holy smokes. Well, I think they're kind of one and the same. It <laughs> could be the I, same uh, show. Yeah, it was the same show. I know exactly when it was. I played on the Grammys where I was in Feist Band and she had had a big year. And we were invited to play on the Grammys. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is going to be incredible. I've made it, you know. Um, I and, and, you know, I, and through playing with her, basically, I whatever ego I had, I don't think I have a terribly big one. But whatever ego I did have, I certainly satisfied it by the time I was 27. Because we played on SNL and the Grammys and I toured all around the world. And we played big shows and, you know, met famous people. And I managed to come out of it without lo- totally losing my head. But... In any case, we were we were at the Grammys, and she decided that she wanted to do like a stripped down version of the this song one two three four, and there wasn't much of a role for it in the, in there for me, so I was told to play the recorder, uh-huh. and uh, and so we did this sort of orchestral version with tuba and all these beautiful uh, L.A. musicians, and I was in there going on this recorder. And so we did the dress rehearsal the day before because it's a big TV show. You know, it's the same people that make the Super Bowl and, and uh, you know, the Oscars and all that. So there's production people, hundreds of people, TV cameras everywhere. And there's little cardboard cutouts in the, uh, in the, in the stands because they want to be able to cut to people when they announce the awards or for re- different people's reaction if they make a joke or something. So they're practicing all their camera moves, right? So we're doing our song. And there's all these cutouts in the front row of G- Beyonce and Jay-Z and Prince and just right. everybody, like literally the whole industry, right? And we're just laughing. We're just, we thought it was so funny. And then the next day, when we actually go to play the show, and I'm sitting 10 feet away from Beyonce going, I was so mortified. You know, I just like, I was so thrilled to be there because I knew that, you know, Feist is an incredible artist. I knew the music was good. I was so proud to be a part of it. But I just was like, what am I doing here? It's like my highest paying gig ever. And I'm just playing like two little notes on this recorder. (laughs) Everything Um, you've trained for your whole life. Exactly. Exactly. So it took me several years to realize how important that moment was and how if I ever, ever get the chance to play recorder in front of Beyonce again, you know how fucking seriously I'm going to take that? Do you know how I will not do anything else but practice that recorder until it's note perfect, you know? Um, I think uh, I didn't appreciate it at the time. And, and um, you know, I'm assuming it's probably the only time I'll get to get to do that. But uh, it was a thrill and an honor and a privilege. And at the same time, it was embarrassing and humbling and... Uh, it was it was a one big bag of emotions in it that went by in a flash. It went by in two and a half minutes. And have you um, ever played the recorder again? Uh, I like the penny whistle. I like Celtic music a lot. I have I since then I've gotten pretty into it actually. So maybe it, it's sort of a traumatic reaction from that experience or something. But uh, I feel like I'm a much better recorder player now. And uh, if you know if anyone's out there that needs my services, I'm available. Well, we welcome you back to sunny Los Angeles whenever you would like to play any instrument. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm really just starting to miss it now. I I can't say I'm bored. It's nice to be busy and be working on good projects and stuff. But I do miss uh, performing and I miss traveling and, and, you know, the band and everything. So I hope I hope uh, Pfizer comes through. Would you like to uh, introduce uh, one last song from the new record? Sure. A song that you feel like didn't get the attention it deserved, perhaps. Huh. One song that I'm really quite proud of is, is Half Your Love. Uh, it's the first time I've done a co-write with anybody, Pat, Pat McLaughlin and, um, 
and D. White, I went down to Nashville to write songs for other people. And, and I did have some productive days and we wrote some good songs. But then I, I got into a room with these guys and I didn't even think we were writing for me. I thought we were just writing a song for D. White. But um, we wrote this tune together. It came together really, really quickly and effortlessly. And every line just felt so good to me. It just feels like a love song of the highest order. And, um, and we, I thought we got a really, really beautiful, simple recording. And it's on this album. And, and uh, if you would play it now, I'd be honored. Half your love. Darling, I would love to see I wonder what the world could be you would only give to me half your love I don't need the whole damn case most of it would go to waste yeah I just need a little taste half your love half your love I fought to get you half your love ever since I met you Half your love is twice as much as I'm ever gonna need People say that less is more Baby, less is what I'm fighting for Honey, you could end this war With half your love Thanks to Afi of Bahamas for talking to me. You can go to bahamasmusic.net for his new record, which is called Sad Hunk. It is really, really great. And he has a new event online called Live to Tape. I think this is going to be an ongoing thing where he teams up with some of his favorite artists, like the 400 Unit, the band that backs up Jason Isbell. Check that out. He's got some new stuff coming your way as well. Once again, a big thanks to Podcorn.com for sponsoring this episode. Explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your humble podcast by signing up at Podcorn.com slash podcasters. As always, this program would not exist without our friends at the Bluegrass Situation. BGS has been flinging our podcast into the skies for the last three plus years. Yes, they are far more than just a banjo meme factory. In fact, they did a really cool feature on Bahamas' song, Half Your Love, from his record, Sad Hunk. Check that out at thebluegrasssituation.com. As always, if you want to be a true champion, please review us on iTunes and share this with your friends and family if you dig it. This podcast was edited, produced, and written by yours truly, Zach Lupiton, and is distributed by the BGS Podcast Network. If you'd like to contribute, and I know you do, please go to PayPal, ZNLupiton at gmail.com on PayPal to send some funds to this very show. We'll see you next week with new episodes.